At Square Root, we never use concentrate. In fact, we rarely concentrate on anything apart from making the best fizzy drinks. So if you notice a few mistakes in this podcast, we apologize in advance. So hi, I'm Robin. I'm the founder of Square Root. And I'm Ed, also the founder of Square Root. We started Square Root in 2012 from our kitchen table with the simple aim of making great tasting fizzy pop from actual fruit. We didn't really know what we were doing when we started, but we took massive inspiration from craft beer and founded our Soda Works. And that's the technical name for a place where soda is made. Since then, we've learned a lot about the soft drinks industry. And the thing that shocked us is that most people don't actually make their products. The vast majority is made on contract, which is fine if that's what you're into. But we believe in the juicy bits, not fruit juice from concentrate. So we wanted to shine a light on people putting the work in and getting down and dirty making their products like we always have. And, and this is it, the Never From Concentrate podcast. Uh, in each episode, you'll hear from people with a hands-on approach to their business. We're talking bakers, roasters, movers, shakers, and maybe even some candlestick makers. We're interested in telling the stories of what it takes to get things made the hard way. So, Ed, who have we got joining us this time? Um, I thought you were booking the guest. Wait. We, we had a meeting about this, and you, you have the idea for the first podcast guest. Uh, well, there's no one here. No one's coming. Okay, okay, we have to stop. We have to stop. Okay, no. So, we're back. We've calmed down a little bit. Um, we haven't got a, a guest for the first podcast, so we're just going to do what every founder loves to do, right? And, uh, and talk about ourselves. You have to banter with me oh. and then say, how do we oh, get sorry. into it? <laughs> Cut. How do you get into it? How did we get into it? Um, so you were working as a brewer in East London um, and I had just finished my degree, which I did not like very much. It was chemistry and maths because apparently I hate myself. Um, so I did what any desperate graduate did and I got a job in the closest bar to our uni, the Euston Tap. And that was one of the first craft beer bars that existed in London. So this is back in 2012 and craft beer is really just sort of starting to become a big thing. And I tried to make this job as close to a nine to five real job that all of my friends had gone out and gotten post degree as possible. Um, and so I did a lot of really boring day shifts. But the, I think the one thing that was good about that is people were coming in every single day with samples of this new, exciting beer with a brewery that they just started um, and were trying to convince us to sell their products. And we sort of, you and I were talking about it. We decided that maybe there was space for us to start our, our own thing kind of in amongst this scene. Um, but the, the thing that we, we really realized is that the, the Houston Tap is kind of famous for having 30 different beers on tap and 100 different beers in the fridge. But if you walked in there and you wanted a soft drink, all you could get was a Coke or Diet Coke. And 
to be really blunt about it, I thought that was shit. Um, so we we were playing around at home making recipes of soda and decided to to start a market stall. Um, and neither of us really knew what we were doing. We sort of bought a terrible, terrible twenty pound gazebo, an equally terrible folding table. It was a painting table it from was Argos. A painting table from Argos. <laughs> um, and with about the sum total of a hundred pounds, started a market stall that sold initially ginger beer and lots of different things that you could make with seasonal produce. So we had really honed in on on British seasonal food. Um and and that's it. So we started turning up to weekend markets and trying to sell stuff. Ultimately, we learned very quickly because the thing with people in the UK is if they're paying money for something and they don't like it, they will definitely tell you immediately how terrible you are. Um, we learned that, uh, that I'm not a baker. <laughs> no one should ever pay me to bake anything for them. It will be terrible. But that no one was really making drinks. Not soft drinks, anyway. Not soft drinks, no. So on the one hand, we had all these people that we were meeting that were starting their own breweries. You were working in one of them. And on the other hand, we had these nice soft drinks that we were making that people were were buying. So those two things sort of combined and made themselves into a kind of side hustle, I guess. Yeah. yeah I mean, it was good in the summer. Yes, it was good in the summer, and then the brutal, brutal UK winter hit, um, and everyone stopped buying from us, which was terrible, because I was on the precipice of quitting working in the bar, thinking I could take this full-time and happily live off of this little cute market stall, and I, I quickly learned that that was not at all going to be possible. So I applied for a job with the London-based street food collective Curb, to be their first intern to kind of do a job that I would find more fulfilling than working in a bar and still be a part of this scene. And I told myself that if I didn't get this job, that we would both quit our current jobs and start trying to figure out how we could battle the great British winter and, and make Square Root a thing. A business pact. A business pact. <laughs> Ooh. It's gonna burp. I don't want to burp. <laughs> Get it out. Let it out. <laughs> no, I need to start again. Needless to say, Curb didn't give me that job. And as part of the pact that we had, we'd lined up this vintage tricycle that we were going to convert into a mobile soda bar, and and start taking that around, and and seeing what we could make of Square Root that way. And luckily for us, Curb actually called me back after calling me to tell me I didn't get the job. Uh, they called me back to say that the original person didn't work out and uh, I could have the job if I wanted it. To which I replied, I can't, I can't have a job anymore. I've, I've bought a tricycle. <laughs> it's a good job they understood what that meant. I think. Yeah, I think then I explained myself and uh, sort of said that while I couldn't work, 
at Curb anymore, I could definitely take this tricycle to their markets and start selling drinks. And we, we just sort of took it from there. So going to these markets, building up this demand, and then meeting more and more people and having people come back time and time again for the drinks and bringing their own containers to, to fill them up, to keep it in their fridge for the week. And so we decided to, to start making it in a bottle from a railway arch in Hackney, like every other East London food-based business. I think we were quite lucky to find the arch. I mean, it just happened to be on the commute when I was going to work one day. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, I'm sorry, I've kind of interrupted. <laughs> Where are you going with well, this? I'm just trying to like defend the railway arch. I mean, like, we, were, we were early to the arch game. Like all these other people that got an arch for branding, you know, we actually just got one to put a factory in it. Yeah, so we, we built a small factory in this railway arch that we operated out of for about six years, starting from making the first pallet of drinks, gradually building up from there to, I can't, like, how much did we actually make from that railway arch in the end? We got to a point where we made about half a million drinks. Total per, or per year? year per yeah, year, okay. about, about, about four or five hundred thousand drinks. Which sounds like loads, but it was really hard work. I mean, we were still filling everything manually at that point. Yeah, so very manual, very uh, tough. Tough is the word I would use to describe it. But so you, you've built both of the factories that we have. So we started in the Railway Arch and now we're, we're based in, do you say it's Walthamstow? Do you say it's Leighton? Near Leebridge, if you're an East London person. Yeah, if you know East London, we're... We're near Walthamstow Marshes. It's got a very nice view from the office. I can see horses in a field. <laughs> <laughs> I kept there for your amusement. <laughs> so um, what was it like building both those factories? Kind of what's the difference between the two? I guess with the first one, we didn't know what we wanted. And we didn't really know what Square Root was going to be. So I think we just built it out of necessity. A lot of the time, um, we scraped a lot of things together. I mean, we obviously, you touched upon it, um, we, we, we borrowed some money, um, we, we know, a startup loan, and that didn't go very far. Yeah. Um, you know, that got us that first filling machine, and it got us a couple of pallets of glass. There was no labeling machine to begin with. You were labeling stuff in the night time. The fit out was adequate. You know, obviously, it's a food business. It's got to be done to a level where it's going to be compliant, and it's going to work. Um, but we didn't have any luxury at all. Like, everything was very manual. The office was a mezzanine that we built ourselves above. It was completely safe, I promise. No, I mean, it was fine. It got signed off. But it wasn't necessarily done in a way that we planned. We kept on constantly moving things around, like the labelling machine was by the door, then it was by the other door, then it was kind of shunted about the warehouse at one point, it was in the middle of the room, then it got moved into the next room. Everything shifted based on need. And we were, you know, for those first six years, I think we were trying to find out what our business was. We were very much living it. We were doing every element of it. And the people that joined us at that point um, joined us at a stage when I think we were still developing everything. We were developing the recipes. We were developing the processes. We were trying to understand what it would be like to make soft drinks. Um, And then I guess with the next space, when we hit the max capacity, I mean, we said around about half a million bottles, we we started to get people approaching us. And we were kind of like, yeah, sure, we can take, take you on. Um, no probs, clearly not having enough ability to make anymore. Um, but moving to the new space allowed us to look at and consider what we actually needed. 
So it was a, it was built a bit more f- for the purpose of making soft drinks. It has a flow. It has certain areas that are made in a certain way. We've got a dedicated room for just sorting and juicing fruit. Which I will say is the same size as the entire railway arch floor print that we had. That is now completely dedicated to just juicing fruit. We got the big Zoomex machine that we always <laughs> dreamed of, you know. Um, we put in proper slot drains and like resin floors and all of the things that... We, we built it with purpose for some permanence, you know. it was a te- It's a 10-year project in the new space. So we built with the intention of maxing it out. And I think... Um, you know, obviously we're in London, uh, price per square foot is not great. It's expensive. So we built up as well. I mean, we put the mezzanine in the warehouses upstairs, which is kind of crazy. So there are some kind of unusual compromises that maybe you wouldn't make if you're in the city, uh, sorry, out in the countryside, for example. I think because we're in a city and it's an it's a production space in East London, it has to function and look in a certain way if you want to do a lot of those things. So I think when I built it um, and designed it, we had to consider a balance between what we could what we needed and also what we could afford so maybe the similarity between both of them is they were both built on a really strict budget um you know it was uh yeah it was it was kind of crazy i mean i'd never project managed to build where we had so many contractors before so we certainly learned a lot of new things yeah and i i would say that the the major difference and the way you could describe the new soda works compared to the old is that it it contains a fully automated packaging line. So we, in the railway arch, we were a team of, I think I would say a team of six people were responsible for making sure your bottles got filled with soda and labeled and boxed up and sent out. Um, And so that's somebody picking bottles off of a pallet two at a time, loading them onto a rinser, Someone else then taking them off the rinser and loading them into a bottling machine and taking them off and passing them to two people who are capping those bottles, who are putting them in crates, and then somebody is coming to take that crate away, put it in a water bath to pasteurise it, which is how we give our products shelf life so that we can store them not in the fridge all the time so they don't explode. Very important. And then someone else is pulling them out of that water bath and taking them to a labeling machine, loading them onto a labeling machine, then off a labeling machine, into the box, and then out to you. And now a machine lifts an entire layer of glass off of a pallet and loads it onto a conveyor belt. And that bottle is then shunted into the washer filler capper, into a tunnel pasteurizer round on some conveyors on through a labeling machine and then somebody takes it off at the end and puts it into a box for you. I guess we wanted to focus our energy on the bits that make a difference to the taste. Yeah. So I think um, the packaging has to be about swiftness and cleanliness and consistency because ultimately that's the point in the production for us where if you don't pack it right, it's going to affect the whole product if it's not packed as fizzy as it should be or if it's not labelled the right way. Um, We also made things a bit hard for ourselves as well. It took quite a long time to find the machinery. Um, You know, we built, we designed a lot of the original kit ourselves. That's obviously not appropriate in the second factory, but we still had to commission things that that are unique to Square Root. We, We were really keen on our bottle cap and having the ring pull cap, something that I think we're both really passionate about. So we had to find the right people that could engineer that. And that took a long time. I mean, we're talking a couple of years in the planning just to try and find all of the right equipment to be able to do it. 
And then once you've got that cap, it also makes it really complicated to label at the other end. So all the labeling machines have got to be able to pick up where that cap is and put the label on properly. And, you know, that's, I think those attention, those bits where the attention to detail is necessary, you have to do it right so that the product is a quality product and it's a consistent product. So all of those, I, I think building it with purpose and process in mind was amazing. It was really great to be able to reassess what we were trying to do and build something that was fit for purpose. Um, our production room is obviously a bit less automated. There's so much um, fruit processing that we have to do. And I think what I was keen to ask you is, is how do we actually make the soda? Because I think in that room, how does it, how does it work? Because that's probably quite good to unpick. Yeah, so I think people know a lot about the brewing process because every brewery in London and beyond now, you can go sit in a tap room and hear someone tell you about that. But soda, maybe it's still a bit more of a mystery to people. <laughs> um, how how would I describe it? So I, I often tell people before they come for a tour of the Soda Works that it's a bit like the Willy Wonka factory, but instead of a river of chocolate, it's a river of lemon juice, uh, which is slightly closer to the truth than a brewery. Um, but it's it's a glorious, chaotic space of fruit going everywhere and juice coming out and being mixed into soda. Um, but that's, that's the bit that I find really exciting is taking a fruit and thinking about what that fruit tastes like and how that fruit tastes like it tastes and deconstructing that into liquid form and rebuilding it so that when you open that bottle of soda, you're, you're tasting the fruit that it's made from so it's very purist and very technical but not technical because most of the time it's just smushing things until they're juice <laughs> but i i think it's important that for for us we're not looking to put stuff in you know we're not looking to add a flavor we want to taste that seasonal fruit yeah so the the original intention was to elevate what soft drinks were. And at the time, what soft drinks were, were Coca-Cola, yes. We all know that that's full of sugar and flavorings. But anything that is sort of marked a lemonade is full of fruit juice from concentrate. And what, what that means is that that lemon has been juiced. It's been in in a basic sense, has been boiled so that all of the, the water has come off and it's been restricted down into the the lowest amount of liquid it can be. It's then been transported to somebody else, mixed into a soda mix, heat treated again, sent to somebody else, put into a package, heat treated yet again, and then it sits on a shelf for six to nine months and you drink it. So... For me, that lemonade has lost all, all of the good characteristics of a lemon. And what we wanted to do was make it taste like fresh lemons. Lemonade that you made at home, essentially. So it's really easy to do that. There's no like big trade secret. You just bring in lemons and you juice them. And you mix them into soda and then you package them into a bottle. And then you do one heat treatment. And that's it. 
keep it simple. Yeah, those are all my secrets. That's the <laughs> you can look at the the back of a lemonade bottle or can from us, and it will tell you that the ingredients are just lemons, sugar, and water. It's about process, and it's about sourcing. Yeah. So you do a lot of our sourcing at Square Root. So tell us about how how that works. When I first started sourcing fruit for Square Root, um, I used to go to Spitalfields Market in the early hours. <laughs> if you want to go, you have to go in the middle of the night, essentially. Mm, so I turn up at about four on the bicycle. That's ambitious. <laughs> Six um, on the bicycle. <laughs> and uh, obviously get ripped to shreds by all the market traders. It's, it's quite an amusing environment. Um, there's a lot of... Uh, fruit is traded very quickly. The prices change a lot all the time. You've got to know what you're buying. You know, uh, reputable traders sell you what you think you're buying. Maybe the less reputable sneak a couple extra wasty boxes in the bottom. Um, we don't really come across that anymore. Um, but we, I think buying on Spitalfields was great because it, it gave us access directly to the product. And you could choose. You could choose the best ingredients at, on, yeah. on the market on the day. And you could you could go and inspect the fruit and... That was great when we were smaller. As we as we grew, we were really keen to start making contact with growers directly because we wanted to have the ability to choose fruit that had unique character. Yeah. We didn't want to be just buying a lemon that you would get in a bar. We wanted to buy a lemon that had some heritage or some taste that would be unique. Um, lemons are a good example. There's a lot of different types of lemons in the world. Um, lemons are actually a winter fruit. Well, citrus is a winter fruit. You know, it's frustrating. Everyone wants to drink uh, orange juice or orange flavored drinks in the summer. Uh, in reality, oranges are ripe at Christmas. I need so. to design you a poster that says like, "Citrus is a winter fruit" or a T-shirt <laughs> or something. Well, I just didn't. I didn't know this. I think. I think we came at it from a very naive position. I mean, you know, we were just like, let's make soft drinks, and uh, had to worry about all of that later. <laughs> um, and then, you know, I think we learned very quickly about seasonality and the, how the seasons change. You know, there was a time where I think it was the first time we sold to the Tate. They ordered a load of rhubarb soda. And it was that typical thing where we're like, yeah, sure, no worries. I'll just go to the to, to the market. And then suddenly no one had any rhubarb. And I was like, why is there no rhubarb? And everyone's like, oh, yeah, the indoor season's finished and the outdoor doesn't start for three weeks. And I was just like, shit, how am I going to do this? Um, but then going and actually visiting farms and talking with them about how it works you, you learn, right? We don't get caught out quite so much. And I think, um, you know, dealing with these farmers, we actually learn about their passion and we can try out uh, fruit that maybe they aren't selling to retail. Yeah, so absolutely. Fruit, you know, <laughs> that's, I think that's like a key thing. Fruit that you get in a supermarket is also kind of awful in the same way that regular soft drinks are awful. It, it's just... It's grown to always be available. So you can buy a pink apple at any time of the year. You can buy clementines any time of the year. And half the time what you're getting is not as good as it could be because it's not in season close to us. It's also, it's grown to meet supermarket standards. So apples must be a certain size so you can fit six in a bag and make a profit. Oranges the same way. Hmm. We're not 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 necessarily always selecting for flavour, and I think um, that's one of the things that's been nice about dealing with the growers is you actually get to talk about well, what product have you got that you can't sell, or what product have you got that has an unusual flavour, or what can we do with that? And so I think that really started to factor into our buying and started to factor into our sourcing and, and thoughts around what Square Root was going to become. It, it it it's working with 
growers that have got these amazing varieties of fruit that have a story and a taste yeah um and an ugliness i don't care if the fruit is ugly (laughs) as long as it tastes amazing give me a lime that's yellow and a a lemon that's green um (laughs) and i'll be happy you know as long as it tastes good as long as it tastes good um and and you know i mean lemons are a good example they have three seasons it's an amazing lemon is an amazing tree I, i think um you know going to sicily and and sourcing fruit from there Le- lemons from sicily are a variety called um feminello which is a different variety to the bar lemon so i mean the bar lemon is one called eureka which is an amazing lemon if you want a, a brisk flavor we use eureka in our raspberry lemonade because we want that tartness yeah um but for the lemonade we just go for feminello because we want that fruitiness and funkiness that comes from the oils in the skin and those flavors develop because of where the fruit is grown and because of the weather and the environment in that locality and i think that's that's typical with a lot of the things that we're buying if it's rhubarb from yorkshire it's great to be buying that product because you're getting a variety which tastes different you're not just getting generic rhubarb sweets flavoring which everyone's drink tastes of yeah everyone's drinks probably made in the same factory with the same flavoring and our our rhubarb variety is grown specifically for us and we selected it based on color and the amazing taste that it has yeah and i think that's that's the key thing being a, being closer to the process allows you the freedom to choose to include so much more if we were going to outsource square root it becomes a completely different product because you can't um put these ingredients through someone else's manufacturing yeah you know and i think that's the that's the key that, we're that's... married to the factory now <laughs> we love it it's great <laughs> So I I have a spicy question. Yes. I just said married and it made me think. <laughs> <laughs> um so if you don't know we're we're partners and partners. <laughs> so what's it like working with your partner Ed? Bearing in mind that we we we're, we're going back to the same place tonight. Well so I guess it's always on, right? <laughs> um or you know the I've always said if you can't trust your partner um you know I don't, I don't actually know what I was going to say after that, but you know, <laughs> I, I think I think working and living together is really is really great. Um, you know, it's ultimately starting a business with somebody that you can trust is important. Yeah, I'd say yeah. the trust is amazing. The boundaries are lacking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not great talking about cash flow at like dinner time. Um, or any random thought that pops into my head at any time of day or night or weekend or... It doesn't matter what we're doing. Sometimes I'm so bad at it that even if we're not together, I will just text you yeah. and be like, I, don't let me forget about this really important, but also mundane and totally not important thing that just popped into my head. I think that's probably, we didn't necessarily know what we were getting into, right? When we started this, it was a much smaller project and Square Root rapidly gained momentum and started to snowball into what it's become now. Yeah, we'd also only been living together for six months when we started Square Root. So we really went <laughs> rapid and into the deep end. A business married. Yeah. We're not actually officially married. We haven't gotten to that point yet, although it's been over 10 years. Oh, goodness me. Uh, proposed with a ring pull. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that'd be brutal. With the dog. Um, but yeah, no, I know. I, I, think, I think it was the right choice. Yeah, I mean, I've never had like an official job apart from this so i can't tell you what it's like to work with anybody else (laughs) 
I think this is typical. I mean, is I've that spoken... Stockholm syndrome? <laughs> no, I've spoken to a few people that are in the same position. I think, I think the the key the, the key detractor is, you know, wanting to talk about work when you shouldn't, and like not getting too official about being like this is non work time. We must we yeah. must talk about normal things like Netflix. You know, I mean, um, yeah, and and I think I think it's easier at work. It's easier the other way around. Yeah, I think I think we have a very complementary set of skills. I I'm not very technical, but I have a great palette and I'm very 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 good at organizing things, like so meticulous about organizing. And you're very good at machines and planning that side of things and sourcing stuff and making relationships with people. Thanks. So, that's fine. Welcome. <laughs> I'm very grateful. For that. <laughs> yeah, I think I think there was but also natural... very messy. I just want to say that now. Okay, well, it's on the recording now. <laughs> I think, uh, yeah. Look, if it wasn't complimentary, we wouldn't have got this far. Yeah. I think there's definitely a dynamic that works. I mean, we've been doing this for a while now. Um, it's nine years of official square root this it month, is. right? And maybe a year of of, of home square root even before that. But I, I think, um, yeah, I think it's it's obviously a challenge, but ultimately the like we have really complementary skills and i think that's really helpful and if you are starting a business it is better to do it with someone else and not oh, yeah. alone i'd never um, never say to do it by yourself that no. would be horrible so lonely as well i imagine i think it is good to have someone to talk to that's going through the same thing i mean like some people call these friends <laughs> um but you know in lieu of that when you start a business at least you know for the first 10 years you you know it's very hard to find time for your friends right <laughs> that was supposed to be a joke um but it's too real no i i think it's um i think it's 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 been good you know and i i think it having having you as a founder and a partner means that we can you can bounce a lot of ideas we're often thinking the same things we're very close in that way and i think that's really helped us to achieve what we've achieved with square root yeah you know and stay focused on the task as well it's a project you know, it's a joint project and I think we've got we've got a lot invested in it and in each other. So therefore, you know, you've got to make it work, right? Yeah. So then if you could change anything about the last nine years, what would you change? Bigger, juicy machine, faster. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We spent way too long squishing things by hand because we thought it made it taste better. But um, that was just not true. That was, that was really hard work. <laughs> Um, I had one really strong arm at the time, though. <laughs> a lot of us had one really strong <laughs> arm. Um, no, I think I think um, automation of certain mundane tasks is great, and you know that's the other thing that's probably changed in the past ten years is with better technology, and uh, you know you're able to automate some of the really basic stuff, yeah. and the cost to access that is is so much lower, and so like this is maybe a bit deep in manufacturing but like <laughs> definitely looking at those types of productivity improvements sooner would have made a massive difference to our lives yeah you know, i mean i feel that yeah we spent a long time doing really silly things for many hours <laughs> which could have been done by a machine and it really doesn't make the drink taste better to know that you spent like 10 hours labeling them by hand or something stupid like that yeah i i'm not sure that i would change anything i think it's not that everything has gone perfectly it's that i think i I went into this not really knowing at all what I was doing. And I think that that was kind of some of the magic of it, being mm. a bit naive and not really knowing what I was getting myself into. I think a lot of the time, you, we talk to people all the time who are like, wow, you run your own business, that's amazing. 
I I work in banking or I'm a lawyer or whatever. I like I want to start something, but I just can't do it. I can't like I haven't figured out how to do it. And I think it's because they're comfortable. Yeah, you mean there's a level of discomfort that makes you really graft for it. Yeah. Yeah. So I literally, I didn't have any savings when we started this. So it had to work because I had to pay my rent. Yeah, I mean, we had to work really hard to make sure that it worked. And I think it was good to have a lot, when we still have a lot on the line. Yeah. You know? I mean, exactly. I come from a tiny village in the Midlands. I'm not moving back then. (laughs) (laughs) We've got to make the lemonade bucks. (laughs) I think, um, yeah, I think, I think the, the, the grit is is what makes the difference but that, yeah. maybe that's what we're looking for in the the fruit that we buy i mean we're buying a bit of grit a bit of grit you know we're buying we're buying that stuff we'll wash from, off before we juice it we do do that um but i think buying from people where you know they are doing something different i mean it's the reason we wanted to start this podcast i think you know never concentrate yeah exactly you know i think i think um having having so putting putting in the hard work really makes a difference to the way you approach all of the challenges you face. You know, we've got a body of success. Like we've been successful for all of this time. So you've got a body of, of things to motivate you forwards against new challenges. Yeah. And that's important. Amazing. So then I guess, I guess we should wrap up. Otherwise we're going to talk forever. We could literally talk forever about fruit, lemons, square root, soda, anything. Um, what's what's your dream flavor of soda that we've not made yet? Oh, that we've not made yet. You know what I was going to say? No. I always wanted to make a root beer. Oh like, no, no. <laughs> that's a shout out to all the root beer fans out there. Every time. Uh, drop a. What do you say in the comments? Drop a, a tea. Is it? A, what's the thing they say on when they? Maybe we've got to cut this out. You got like there's like a way of like <laughs> is it an F? I think it's an F in the comments. Like anyway, but um. Really showing my age. Um, (laughs) (laughs) What could I make if... uh, Well, so today's also um, a historic day. There's a very famous um, brand of pineapple and grapefruit soda that's being rebranded. So maybe I'd love to make a pineapple and grapefruit soda. We could call it Tilt. Something like that. I can't... There's probably for reasons we can't say what it's called, (laughs) but yeah. That'd be my dream flavour. Something fruity tropical. This is a tough question for me, though, because I... So I do a lot of our recipe development, so... Essentially, if I can dream it, I can make it into a soda. Um, I've made all sorts. I've made a birthday party soda, which went beyond cake. It actually tasted like, well, smelled a bit like freshly burnt out, like blown out candles, like a birthday party. And it had glitter in it. And I am not allowed to bring glitter to work ever again. I've been officially banned. I had to clean the machine. (laughs) (laughs) That's why it's banned. Um, I've made a chili cola. That was a collab we did with the Nottingham-based sauce shop. That was amazing. Um, I've just launched into the Tate and Apple and Woodruff soda. Um, that it just is to go with their Cezanne exhibition, and that is just incredible. It's like liquid apple pie. Woodruff is amazing. Woodruff is an amazing ingredient. But what? What else? Dream big. Dream big. Yeah. I just want to put glitter in sodas again. That's all I want. <laughs> Others have done it as well. Like a snow globe. <laughs> yeah. I, I suppose that's the thing. We Having a factory, we could just literally make anything. Yeah. Whatever you want. If you'll buy enough of it. We'll make it for you. Square root. <laughs> nice. So we, we, should, we should promote square root and yeah, wrap sure. up. So, Ed, where can you buy square root? Oh. Uh, check the stockist map on the website. Um, whole, uh, you get a Monocado on our website directly. Yes. Um, the Tate as well, you mentioned. Amazing. Yeah. 
Anyone else you want to give a shout out to? Uh, so you can, while Curb did reject me as their first employee, you can buy Square Root at every Curb market and, uh, and venue, which is amazing. I asked Ed the question because I didn't know the answer, apparently. <laughs> Check the stock is Matt. Find us on social media. We're on Instagram. We're on TikTok. It's at Square Root LDN on both. Um, more of this podcast content is going to come out through there. Great. Yeah. And we, we've we got, hopefully, some guests coming up for the next ones if we can actually remember to, I'm confident, to invite them. I'm confident we've, we've got it in the bag. You only make this mistake once at Square Root, otherwise you have to leave. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm already on my last... <laughs> <laughs> Final warning. <laughs> Final warning. Yeah, cool. Amazing. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. That was great, I think. Yeah, good. I just wish I hadn't made that joke about Beast and we're going to have to cut that out, aren't we? Oh, he's definitely going to follow that up. Yeah.